Hey everybody, welcome to the Rabbit Room Podcast, episode number 33. Jonathan Rogers, our resident professor, scholar, author, and southerner, has written several books, including The Charlatan's Boy and a biography of St. Patrick, both of which are available here in the Rabbit Room, as well as at huge impersonal internet warehouses that don't really need your money. Uh, But his newest work, The Terrible Speed of Mercy, a spiritual biography of Flannery O'Connor, releases September 18th from Thomas Nelson Publishers. Flannery O'Connor is one of the last century's great authors, and she's probably been as misunderstood as she has been appreciated, partly because of the seeming contrast between her famously dark stories and her devout Christianity. Whatever you may think about her stories, Flannery was fascinating. Singer, songwriter, electric guitar rocker, and fiction aficionado Andrew Osenga recently sat down with Jonathan after a weekly bowling meet. And they had an interesting discussion about the South, depravity, Flannery O'Connor, and the terrible speed of mercy. Wait, she loved she loved stock car racing. Yeah, on television. Yeah. So she would, Flannery O'Connor would watch. She would watch stock car racing on television. Uh, like NASCAR kind of stuff? That kind of, yeah, I don't think NASCAR was invented, but yeah, that, that kind of stuff. So somebody gave her, I think somebody gave her a TV, maybe some nuns gave her a TV or something. That's awesome. Yeah. And, um, uh, cause she had helped him out with a book and, uh, <laughs> and then she, uh. And that's almost but, like getting a flashlight from the Amish person. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. But she was a uh, somebody gave her a television, or she she ended up with a television somehow. Maybe she had some, some prize money. Mm-hmm. But it came at a time when she she was really struggling with writer's block, and so she watched more TV than she should have probably. Okay. And she would write. She would watch like she loved um, W. C. Fields movies. And, well, like what are W. C. Fields movies? I don't. I mean, you know what W. C. Fields is, don't you? I mean, I know the name, but I don't know that I'm familiar with any. Of his He's name. the guy with the with the always wore a top hat and. Oh yeah 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 yeah. Was always drunk. I mean, his, his his character was he was always drunk. Yeah. And uh, but but she said she, she whenever she watched a WC Fields movie she loved it except for the parts where he wasn't on like where he wasn't on screen. And she said, you know, I think I could write a WC Fields movie, but he would always be on screen. There, there would be no like developing scenes. Did she ever did she ever write anything that wasn't like books or short stories? Yeah, she wrote she wrote uh, like screen screen essays. No, not screenplays, but essays. Uh, I mean, she wrote a lot of speeches. That, you know, she paid a lot of bills. I mean, she she didn't have insurance. She had lupus and no insurance, so I she was having her. to. Yeah, you know, I remember to, you saying that she. Well, in the book, you said that she had lupus. Yeah, so she was you know having to do these uh, talks and things that paid better than writing. I mean, you're going around and doing lectures and. So did she not make much money off of her books? Not a lot. I mean, you know, uh, is, is she one of is, is she one of those cases where like. Where she did better after posthumously, so, yeah. Or was it was she kind of always relegated to a corner of the literary world? Uh, well, I mean, there was there was never any mass market for Flannery O'Connor, right? I mean, there's more of a mass market now than ever, and there's not one now. So she was, um, yeah. Like I mean, she got she got. Um, am I getting this right? I think she published something in Mademoiselle or some magazine. It was pretty sure it was Mademoiselle, and she she made some comment to her friend in, in a letter. She wrote, you know, she was always writing letters, and she commented, "Yeah, but nobody reads Mademoiselle anyway." And it's like, what she meant was none of her friends read. So yeah, yeah, yeah. Was, nobody reads Wise Blood is what you yeah, mean. Kind of, yeah, <laughs> yeah, right. So she she was used to publishing in these 
journals that had you know uh, uh, circulation of two thousand people, and they were the right two thousand people. They were like the mm-hmm. the people who knew good literature when they read it, and they loved her. Yeah. And so it was really funny when she said, you know, nobody reads reads this magazine except the ladies in the beauty parlors. I thought, well, how many ladies are in the beauty parlors compared to... <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, upper crust academics. Yeah. That's really... Okay. I, see, I always had this impression of her as being a bigger deal. I think just because I read her in high school. Like, yeah, Anyone right. who I read in, as required reading in high school, I figured was a big deal. Yeah. And, and she was definitely a big deal in terms of the people who knew, you know, the, 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 the literati... I mean, from the time she was, she wasn't even, I don't think she was 20 yet, and people started realizing that she was the real deal. And so, she, you know, she was at the, the huh. Iowa Writers Workshop. Yeah, yeah, yeah. She, so she graduated from high school early, went to the Iowa Writers Workshop, and she, I, I don't, it's in my book if you want to read it, but the, uh, the, the, her exact day, she was either 20 or not yet 20 when she first got published. Okay, wow. I mean, she was really, um, maybe 21, she was super young. And but she's at the Ira Writers Workshop, kind of the you know pretty close to the epicenter of American letters, and everybody was saying this one's special. You know, like the people mm. in her class, um, you don't you've never heard of any of them. You know, really. But and so she was head and shoulders above everybody else at the Iowa Writers Workshop. Yeah, she was always a big deal to the people who are in the know. But okay. you know, still yeah. you, you can still starve to death. You know, she lived with her mother all her life. Yeah. Um, and um, so, I mean, I think that was just her her needs were relatively small, except for those medical expenses. So, hmm. yeah, cause I don't. I mean, I know I read. I mean, I read. You know, a good man is hard to find in high school. Yeah. I had a had a great class in high school, a twentieth century poetry drama short story class. Wow! In a public high school in yeah. Illinois, Central Illinois. Yeah, and I mean, which was awesome. Read Vonnegut. And Class full of Iron Men and Lady Iron Men. Heming- yeah, you're right. <laughs> the normal community, Iron Men and Lady Iron Men. I love that you remember that. <laughs> um, but yeah, so all I knew of her, of her was that short story. And then when I became like, I got into, pres- I made a bunch of Presbyterian friends in my 20s. And then all yeah, the right. pastors were, you know, always talking about depravity all the time. And reading <laughs> Flannery O'Connor and quoting her all the time. Oh, yeah. she must be a... And I would, so I, you know, bought the, you know, that yellow book that yeah. everybody probably has. It's, and I was like, this stuff is so dark. Yeah. And that, I mean, I guess that's why we're having this, that, that's why we're having this discussion. Yeah, right, right. It was, well, I guess we were, we were bowling. We were bowling, as we are wont to do. <laughs> <laughs> and you, probably poorly. Yeah, right. <laughs> and, uh, yeah, I you know I, I mentioned I was writing writing this book for the I mean I think I said I'm writing this book for the the intelligent well-read Christian who knows he's supposed to get something out of Flannery Connor and just does it and you said oh that's me yeah that is totally me yeah so I mean you were you were the one man target your audience t- your for target the terrible speed of mercy <laughs> uh, the uh, no I mean literally every morning can, can, every is morning that on I, the cover of the of the book <laughs> inspired by interesting yeah. uh, no the uh, Literally every morning when I woke up to write, I was. And this I hope this doesn't sound weird to you. I was picturing Andy Osinga. I mean, I was like, I was, I was talking to you. So. That's awesome. In other words, I, I felt like we had been talking about Flannery O'Connor for a long time, and that maybe we were really, really close friends, closer than mm-hmm. you think. <laughs> <laughs> because every morning, you know, I, I didn't have a picture of you sitting there on the desk. Yeah, I could have with a know. candle in front of it. <laughs> yeah, right. Okay, so I've been thinking a lot about this, knowing that we're going to have this conversation. Yeah, because. I am so 
interested in maybe it's and I don't know that it necessarily has to do with Flannery O'Connor although I think she's like I guess she's the perfect example of this idea of like she's a believer in Jesus who writes about these the depraved the depravity of the world and the darkness uh-huh and um and most of the stories that I read and, and although I have read since we've had that discussion I've read more and mm-hmm. I've and had read some things that I felt that you know had some more redemption in them, but a lot of them were like, "Man, does this have? Why is this is just like pointlessly sad?" Yeah, and if, uh, to and it made me think of like Breaking Bad or yeah, right. Um, you know, you see some movies like uh, I don't know, but the, those depressing movies, the mm-hmm. Legends of the Fall, and it's like, what was the point of this outside of everything is terrible and everyone dies? Yeah, and uh, and there's no hope in it. And not that you know, not not that I'm wanting everything to have a little bow on it, mm-hmm. but maybe I guess I do in some ways. Oh, yeah, right. Yeah, I mean, she uh, in early on after she'd read a few reviews, she said to somebody, "Everybody thinks I'm some sort of hillbilly nihilist." Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and she says, I, I, mean, "I totally get that." Yeah, though. right. And, and she said, "What I really am is a hillbilly Thomist, <laughs> like Thomas Aquinas." That's funny. Yeah, and. Um, but I think you know one one thing, one thing to be aware. I think it's important to understand about Flannery O'Connor's stories is that that you know truth and and mercy and grace present themselves, but mm-hmm. the person doesn't always receive it. Huh. You know? I mean, so she, I mean, she's what she wasn't a Calvinist. What she, was she? Didn't, what was her? She was I'm Catholic. Sorry, she was a, she was a, a devout Roman Catholic. You oh, know, every okay. morning she got up, she said her prayers. Uh, after her mom fixed her some breakfast, they'd go down to, to the uh, to the uh, Catholic church and go to mass, and then she'd come home and write these stories about prostitutes and that is and, and amputees and you know hermaphrodites, and then she'd go to lunch <laughs> with all her southern lady yeah, friends. Right, yeah, yeah. yeah, that's one. You, I kind of picture her. It, it was funny. I mean. My picture of her was kind of uh, who's that lady? She was on the Office, Kathy Bates. Yeah, right. Like to me, that's that's the image of her I've always had in my head. And then reading the description of her, like she was nothing like that. Yeah, just this kind of tiny. Yeah, I mean, a little, little bit frail and. Yeah, um, you've probably never heard. There's a there's a link that floats around on the internet. I think it gets taken down because it's probably an illegal recording of of her reading. Um, uh, Good man is hard to find. Have you have you heard no. this? It's amazing. Yeah, I'm gonna find that. Yeah, it's easy. I mean, you know, every about every two weeks on Twitter, like five people say, "Look at this! Check out this recording from Planner and Connor." And it's not an illegal recording. I think people are distributing it illegally. Yeah, yeah. It, it actually appears on the um, the uh, the Wise Blood DVD as a special feature. Oh, okay. Um, yeah, there's a there's a movie of a John Houston movie of Wise Blood. Is it any good? You know, when I first saw it, I hated it. Mm-hmm. I mean, like in 1990 or whatever it was when I saw it, and um, and now I love it. It's it's uh, one thing that's crazy about it is it was filmed in Macon, Georgia, uh-huh. and um, filmed in 1980, 1979, somewhere along in there, and um, and so like in the first scene, you got this locomotive coming down the track, mm-hmm. but it's so low budget that. Like when they did street scenes in Macon, they didn't like clear off the streets. It was just like regular people from Macon in 1979. And so this guy in a Atlanta Falcon shirt and a big old huge afro, <laughs> and it's supposed to be set in like 48 or something like that. You know? Or so no, are, I guess, the, are the main characters? Yeah, the main dressed? character. Yeah, the main character dressed. 
It's like, yeah. yeah. It's like a guy with a Bon Jovi t-shirt in a Star Wars movie. <laughs> yeah, right. That's awesome. <laughs> so, but, uh, you know, it's it's it has this real indie vibe, that, you know, yeah. low-budget indie vibe that now is cool, but in 1980 seemed like, what? <laughs> yeah, when there was not really indie cinema. Yeah. Huh, fascinating. All right, well, you, okay, so you gave me a couple stories. You're like, well, you should read this and read that. And there, like, I read, there was the... The one with the waiting room. Yeah, Revelation. Revelation. Yeah, that's what I want to tell people to start with because the, I mean, a Flannery Connor, Connor story's story always has this moment of violence that is also a moment of revelation, right? Hmm. And so, in Revelation, that moment of violence is not quite as violent. Lady gets hit in the head with a textbook, but it's not. You know, mm-hmm. She doesn't get killed, and and then so the the violence is a little more palatable, and then the revelation is a little more. You know, it's the the mercy and the grace offered mm-hmm. in that revelation is a little more obvious. And so, I, you know, I always tell people to start with revelation, and then understand that what happens in revelation happens in all our stories. Hmm. Sometimes a little more exaggerated. So, in in um, a good man is hard to find. You know, the violence is a serial killer murders a whole family. Yeah, and and the moment of revelation for the grandmother isn't nearly as obvious as it is for the or it's not as maybe I should say it's not as obvious it's not as easily interpreted yeah well sort of she she realizes like she hasn't been as good of a person as she thought she was yeah and then she dies and then she dies yeah, <laughs> like, yeah. dude <laughs> <laughs> yeah but you know but but for for Flannery O'Connor self-righteousness is the most dangerous evil I mean I, maybe I'm overstating the case a little bit well I mean it was for Jesus yeah right you know, yeah. He talks more about that than anything else. And so, getting getting killed, if in the process of getting murdered, you defeat your own self righteousness. Well, I mean, as Christians, we believe <laughs> that. Win. Yeah, right. We believe that that yeah. it's better to lose. You know, lose your how's it go? But, but if you gain the whole world and lose your soul, that's a yeah, that's a bad thing. Yeah. And but when we see it enacted in a story, we think, well, that's really dark. <laughs> and and yeah. I guess that, that's what's so amazing about Flannery O'Connor. She didn't flinch from those those hard truths yeah. that we all say we believed. So uh, I've heard you mention Breaking Bad in, in the context of Flannery O'Connor before, and, and I've never seen. I'd meant to watch an episode of Breaking Bad before we had this conversation. Oh yeah, yeah. yeah. Is that I mean is that well, a nihilistic? I guess I have friends that have watched every episode, uh-huh. and I watched maybe three or four, and I was like, I I can't watch this. It's so dark. It's really, really well done. It's uh-huh. well written, well acted, well directed. I mean, it looks great. You know, it's a work of art uh-huh. that's done well. But it, the art just reflects how terrible people are and how terrible mm-hmm. they are to each other. Mm-hmm. And I felt like, man, what? Why do I? I, I don't need any more proof, even well shot. <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> you know, that we're that we can be terrible to each other. Like I feel that way with. I felt that way when I saw Batman, the Batman movie with the Joker. Yeah, right. Everybody's freaking out about the character, you know, the Joker, and how he, such a brave performance. Mike, it's uh-huh. not brave to act like you give in to every impulse. Uh-huh. Like that's the weakest thing you can do. Yeah, and and you know, in those in those types of movies, the villain is what makes it interesting, mm-hmm. and we celebrate the villain. And even though it was awesome, and I watched it again and loved it, but the first time, <laughs> I'm, you know, <laughs> I think I got over it. But the first yeah, time, right. it was just. Ah, I just kind of, part of me just didn't want to accept that as entertainment or as well, worthwhile. Like, why we, Why do we want to watch somebody just being evil? Yeah. I, I don't know how much light Flannery Connor sheds on Breaking yeah. Bad. 
right? Yeah, she she may not. So um, it, yeah, and my I think my question was in my head that I sort of had this in the same category, right? Of well done works of art, yeah. pointing out just depravity. But I, but you're saying that that's not the case, right? I can't find this quotation. I'm not sure it's I'm not sure it's it's kind of apocryphal. So she may not have said it, but sure. I've, I've heard that Flannery O'Connor said. Uh, lots of people get killed in my stories, but nobody gets hurt. Hmm. Um, so that whatever suffering people go through is redemptive, or at least has the potential to be a redemptive. Hmm. Um, and I, again, I, I do need to offer the, offer the caveat that not everybody receives yeah. the, the grace that's offered. Uh, you so know, that's, so, really, that's a really interesting point. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, so so they don't always have happy endings because not everybody... And, and by the way, sometimes you can receive... Grace and that still not look like a happy ending mm-hmm. from a you know, uh, if, if let's say the grandmother in in Good Man is Hard to Find actually receives the grace that's offered to her. I mean, I think probably she does, but so is that a happy ending that she gets shot anyway? Yeah. Uh, on the other hand, she extends grace to the misfit. Yeah. And he doesn't receive it. Yeah. He, he's as rotten as he ever was. In any case, though, she is set free from something that is that has entrapped her her whole life, hmm. and that is this this self. You know, self-sufficiency and self... Plug in whatever noun you want to put after self. Yeah. Self-sufficiency, self-righteousness, self. And she's freed from that. Yeah. And how happy... You know, we, we expect our happy endings to include not getting shot by a serial yeah, killer. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, most of the Disney movies don't end that way. <laughs> that's true. They usually end in a wedding. That, yeah, that's um, right. Yeah, the, my, we, we were watching The Incredibles and my girls and there's a wedding 10 minutes in and they're like, is it done? <laughs> That's hilarious. <laughs> um, okay, so why did this woman write these kinds of stories? How did yeah. that happen? Well, she. How did she happen? Yeah, well, that's. I mean, that's what that, my whole book is about. How, yeah. How, how does this person happen? And, and and I think people go into a biography list thinking she, there must have been some childhood trauma. There must have been some something that happened that. Expl- I mean, you know, people. I think picture Flannery O'Connor. She must have been this sort of Tuesday Adams. You know, Adams family kind of. You know, Tuesday mm-hmm. Adams and the Adams family. Yeah. Um. And there's not, there's no real evidence of that. She was just, she was just a little, just a, I mean, she was certainly very talented, very unusual, um, but not a freak or anything. Yeah. I mean, she, she tells why she writes the story she writes. You know, let's say Dante, for instance, had the luxury of a Christian person, a Catholic person, writing to a Catholic audience. He and his audience shared a worldview. And she says, I don't have that luxury. I'm writing to people who don't believe in human depravity, who don't believe in redemption, who don't, who I've, I've got no common ground with them, hmm. she says. A very, you know, I can't remember how she phrases it exactly, but basically she doesn't um, have the luxury of being able to talk normal to these people. And she says, um, to the hard of hearing you shout, and to the blind you draw large and startling figures, or to the almost blind you draw large and startling figures. Hmm. And so you know, she says, that's, that's why I write this way. Huh. Um, we're familiar with the idea that that God disrupts our life. That's a, that's a relatively common idea for a, for a Christian that yeah. that we've got our way of doing life and God interrupts that. We're also comfortable with the idea that that may be uncomfortable. That that disruption yeah. may be uncomfortable. And she just sort of exaggerates that idea that yeah. you know that we that we live blind to who we are, blind to the kind of universe we live in, blind to the fact that there's a God who has a claim on us. We as Christians, we're accustomed to the idea that God, one way or another, gets our attention. And sometimes we talk in terms of getting wrecked, and that's a kind mm-hmm. of a, a 
catchphrase these days. You yeah, know, yeah. You know, I just that just wrecked me. But I think it's a pretty useful way to talk about what God does in our lives. And so she's writing about people getting wrecked, but it's so literal, we're not comfortable with it. We like talking metaphorically about getting wrecked, but not we don't literally <laughs> like wrecks. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, all this stuff. As long as it doesn't happen to me, it's awesome. <laughs> yeah, right. Man, okay, that makes me want to read a lot more. I think uh-huh. I think without a framework, it, it's hard yeah, for me to understand some of that. Yeah. I think probably, probably the framework, the only framework I'd had until we started talking about it was a nihilistic English teacher in high school. So your English teacher didn't offer to you any kind of framework for this was a person talking about ultimate truth and the way ultimate truth changes no. on our life? It was, see why none of this matters? That's how it was taught. Which made, per- I mean, you can get that out of that. Yeah. No, sure, <laughs> you, yeah. you know, yeah. like I can... I can understand why he would say that. I mean, he got that out of pretty much everything. Well, one of the things that's amazing about Flannery O'Connor to me was her willingness to be misunderstood. Yeah. You know, she said, if this truth is true, I'm okay. I mean, she didn't say this. I'm, I'm interpreting this. Yeah. It's, it's okay. It doesn't have to be understood for it to be true. And mm. she did say, and this gets Twittered all the time, um, truth doesn't change according to our ability to stomach it. Yeah. And so there was an artistic integrity that made her willing to be misunderstood, but it was also a theological integrity. That made her, she was okay to offer up the truth in its, however ugly it might be, and say, this is the truth. Understand it or don't understand it, that's not my, not, you know, not my problem. She was a little bit sensitive to the uh, reviews that she got. It it just got all over and people would would accuse her of, like, somebody said she was loveless. There was no love. Mm -hmm. And she says, well, I guess the love of God doesn't count. (laughs) Because she doesn't really talk about romantic love or sexual love. I mean, that's, yeah. Love between a man and a woman isn't a, an important theme in, in her work. And so, you know, one at least one critic said, well, there's no love in her work. And, and that you know, that hurt her feelings. And she got one letter from a, some lady who said, you know, I'm a Catholic, and I don't understand how people can even have such thoughts as, the, as these. <laughs> <laughs> but then, uh, but, but Flannery O'Connor then sat down and wrote the woman a, a letter back. And she said, my, my letter was so orthodox, the bishop himself could have signed it. And... <laughs> and, and, and the woman. That's fantastic. Yeah, and now the, you know, then the woman and, and she became pen pals and they were friends. Really? You know, yeah. She said something like, people, some of my biggest fans would be really heartbroken if they understood how conventional I am. Mm-hmm. You know, that how, she, she said some, something along the lines of, my theology would be perfectly acceptable for any Sunday school teacher out there. Huh. And, it, and it's true. I mean, she's completely, now it's a Catholic orthodoxy and as, sure. as Protestants there's some things that we that we don't agree with. Although I have to say she does tend to stay in what C.S. Lewis called you know, mere Christianity where, where we all overlap, where yeah, Protestants yeah. and Catholics and Eastern Orthodox and Coptics or whoever all kind of that 90% that we all share. Yeah, you know? And she tended to stay in that. But I think the, the amazing thing about Flannery O'Connor is that her, she, she makes it clear that orthodoxy isn't as vanilla or as mm-hmm unsurprising as we I mean, we use orthodox to mean unsurprising and, yeah you know uninteresting that kind of stuff and and she makes the point through her fiction that no it's pretty pretty shocking stuff yeah yeah uh, for sure yeah so I, I want to hear about reading Flannery O'Connor as a high schooler with a a a a teacher who who doesn't give you any kind of theological context and b outside of a southern context yeah in the midwest yeah, yeah. well I mean in this class we were reading Hemingway and Steinbeck. But yeah, so I, I didn't know that she was a believer. Uh-huh. That wasn't presented. And it was, you know, when you're kind of lumped in with Hemingway and... Yeah. I mean, and that stuff's all pretty dark and hopeless, right. a lot of it, you know. And so I kind of assumed that she was one of that crew. Yeah. 
in that world, but turned, you know. Yeah. And it wasn't until I think, you know, Scotty Smith. Yeah. And at Christ Community would always quote her and he, was, he would read her, he'd read his Bible in Flannery O'Connor every morning. That's yeah. kind of weird. I mean, I, part of me kind of likes it because I'm, I'm a nerd and I like books and things. Yeah, like right. That. So then I started investigating and finding out that she was. Yeah. That teacher should have had his, his teaching license revoked. <laughs> I mean, you know, what's, what's he teaching if he doesn't teach you that this is a, that this is a, a Christian woman? Um, yeah. Not? Well, he was pretty anti. Then why didn't he just leave her off the syllabus? I don't know. But I mean, that kind of proves your point. That it's for people who don't who don't necessarily subscribe to that worldview. Yeah, to read it, but he loved it. Uh huh. And I, well, I, I mean, it just just as literature. I mean, it's, yeah, it's, it's so fantastic. Well, yeah, for the sure. imagery is so vivid, and the language is just amazing. But you're you're right. I mean, even not getting this this south of it. Yeah, I think it, she did make more a lot more sense to me once I've traveled in the south and yeah, seen the deep south. And there are and, terms of phrase in there that that I. Never, I mean that I grew up hearing, but would have never never occurred to me that I might see them in print. You know what I'm saying? Yeah, because she was like what? So she's like, from twenty miles. She's from twenty miles north of Macon. I'm from twenty miles south of Macon. So we're kind of from the same. World. Oh, I love it. And um, oh, I mean just just even things like um, when when the uh, uh, the misfit at the end of uh, Good Man's Hard, Hard to Find says. Uh, it's no pleasure in life, Bobby Lee. Just that locution, it's no pleasure in life. Not yeah. there is no, but it's no. I don't know if that's uniquely Middle Georgia, but I don't. I've never, that. I've never heard it. Yeah. yeah, shut up, Bobby Lee. It's no pleasure in life. Well, that's the way country people in Georgia. That's yeah. a locution that they use sometimes. In, in uh, so, what, I, what did her friends think? Oh wow, they, her, she had one book signing reception in Milledgeville, Georgia, and okay. she said, "I'll never do that again." Really? Yeah. She's uh, when when Wise Blood was published, um, everybody um, in middle, you know, in Milledgeville wanted to. Throw this party for, and, and, or wanted to throw. Was that her first? For. That was her first. That was big, her first big publication. Okay. I guess she had she had published a few stories here and there, um, but, but even most of those stories were chapters from Wise Blood. Oh. I don't think she, I, I don't think she had published anything besides chapters to Wise Blood until Wise Blood. Gotcha. I may I may have that wrong, but but um, her short story career really started with Good Country. I mean, uh, Good Man is Hard to Find. Really? Yeah. Wow. That was that was the first one, and then. Kind of took off, from and that's there. what she kind of was. I mean, that's what she's really known for. Short yeah, stories. yeah, that's right. And so that's definitely where her short story career took off. Was with you know, Good Man is Hard to Find, and uh, it's been so long since I finished that that book. That yeah, I finished writing it. That I'm a little, <laughs> those are the details, but yeah, yeah. Uh, there were people like her. Her aunt, uh, who was kind of the matriarch of the Milledgeville branch of the family, yeah, said, uh, "Well, I don't know where Flannery met those people, but it certainly was not at my house." <laughs> <laughs> or I shouldn't say. She said Mary Flannery. She said I don't know where because her family called her Mary Flannery O'Connor. That's great. Um, and her um, so she was Mary Flannery all the way through um, Georgia College, and then she started going by Flannery whenever she went to Iowa. Man, I didn't uh, realize that. No, yeah. and she had um, you know relatives. Um, who were shot and didn't like it, and but then when she started selling, <laughs> oh, you said who were shot. They didn't like getting shot. It's, I didn't understand that. <laughs> no, they they were. Um, she had an, an, a cousin, um, a wealthy cousin in Savannah, who she was just afraid. I think she was eighty, maybe when Wise Blood came out, and she was afraid that it was going to you know send her to her grave because uh, she was going to be so shocked by it. <laughs> and uh, but she said all she got was a note from her uh, from her aunt that says, "Dear Flannery, I did not like your book." <laughs> 
So, yeah. So everybody in Milledgeville, a lot of people in Milledgeville seem to have taken it as a criticism of them. You know, as if well, I could totally understand yeah. why they would do that. Yeah, but but she was never claiming to present Milledgeville as Milledgeville or Middle Georgia as Middle Georgia actually is. I mean, she was fiction's always always happens at the extremity, right? Or it doesn't always, but yeah, it tends to. Yeah. And, and I'm not all that interested in fiction that it happens right in the middle yeah because i mean I'm, i just know one bad review can destroy me i, I yeah i mean you know you so, try to let them flow off your back but it, when you what what do, what do bad reviews do to you well i mean do they change the way you do what you do sometimes not often not do you, any, do i don't you, think they, i don't think they do anymore do you get bad reviews from people who you think know what they're talking about see that's when it that's when i that's when it matters yeah. i remember one of the first reviews of my first record had some things that I realized I agreed with. Yeah. You know, like, oh, yeah, this these songs aren't, aren't that good. Yeah. <laughs> oh, I really do sound like a 12-year-old. Wow. I should you, work somebody on said these. that? N- n- I don't think it said that, but it basically. No. Yeah, right. And um, and they were right. Yeah. Um, so I took that as a challenge because uh-huh. nobody else had told me that. Yeah. You know, and sometimes it takes a stranger. <laughs> right. <laughs> you know, and not at this point, having done it long enough, you can sort of tell, okay, if this is somebody I really respect... It's gonna hurt, you know, but mm-hmm. but the, the being able to be misunderstood—that's tough. Mm-hmm. But that's I, I see that in a lot of people that I really, really that you really, really respect later on, from musicians or writers or things. But it's I can't imagine being in that place where I'm not gonna try to just correct my way, especially in these days where everything is every misstep is followed by an immediate apology and. Yeah, right. A PR campaign. To, I didn't yeah. mean what I just said. Yeah, right. To just say, well, I guess they didn't get it. Yeah. I'm going to keep going. Yeah. that's That takes some chutzpah. Yeah, right. Did you get that whole the N-word debacle? Oh, man. That that's it, it, that was never a debacle, really. It was um, some you know somebody at Thomas Nelson said, wait, 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 wait. We, the N-word appears like I, I didn't like I didn't put N dash. I put the actual yeah. word. And we, you know, we don't really do that at Thomas Nelson. We don't use that word. Mm-hmm. And you know, I understand why it's an offensive word, right? Yeah. And um, and so the the long and short of it is they they wanted to bleep out some, but then there's the 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 short story with the title is the artificial nigger. Yeah. And what are you gonna, are you going to bleep out the title of a story? And and so so what they're going to do the, the original all, plan was, they were all quotes, right? Everything. All, <laughs> Yeah, I, I don't. I don't use. I don't use that word in my normal prose. Yeah. Well, I mean, I mean, but they weren't even. You weren't even referencing discussions. They, they were. Or were right. Or it, were it was all. I mean, anytime that word appears, anytime that word appears in Flannery Connor's fiction, mm-hmm. it's in the mouth of a character. Yeah. Who is, you know, ignorant. Yeah. Right. I mean, it's it is. Um, it's not like the narrator says. It's not yeah. like the narrator uses that word. Yeah. Characters do. And that's what we ended up doing was writing a, I don't know if the right word is an apology or what, but, but a little note at the beginning of the book that says, hey, we use this awful word 13 times in this book. And one thing I want to make clear was it's not that the word is more offensive now than it was when Flannery O'Connor used it or that Flannery O'Connor misunderstood what an offensive word she was using. It's not mm-hmm. like she was this you know, hillbilly from Milledgeville, Georgia, who didn't know that you're not supposed to use that word. Yeah, She knew it was this inflammatory in 1960 as mm-hmm. it is now. Probably more More, so. more yeah. inflammatory. And she used it on purpose. So I, I felt like to bleep it out would be to suggest that we somehow understood it 
better than she did. Hmm. And so I, I, we, we went back and forth a little bit with the publisher. It was, it was a very cordial conversation all the way around. But, you know, I, I composed this thing that said, yes, it's offensive. You're supposed to be offended. And good, good for you if you're offended by this word. <laughs> you know, uh, okay, if I'm going to read five short stories to get in to yeah. her. Five short stories, all right. To the listener. So Start with uh, Revelation. Start with okay, Revelation. And these are all these are all in their complete the complete works. Yeah. So the the, the thick the one with a with a um, the peacock on peacock it. on the front. So uh, Revelation, good man is hard to find. Good country people. That's a good one. Oh, man. That really is yeah. good. <laughs> and then as far as the other, you know, the the other the numbers four and five, just pick anything. That comes after good country people. Uh, the good good man is hard to find in the collected works. So collected works begins. I thought. I mean, I'm so mad about this. Whoever put that collection together started with these stories that she wrote as a very young woman, and they mm-hmm. just aren't nearly as good as what she did. Okay, it's basically a juvenilia, and the kind of things that if they included, they should have stuck it in the back in an appendix, in my opinion. Gotcha. So there are a lot of people who start. I'm going to read Flannery O'Connor. They start with these. I think I probably did that. Yeah, that, that really. I mean, they're good. They're better than anything I could write, but they're, no. but they're still not as good as what Flannery O'Connor does. Yeah. And so, I always tell people don't uh, don't read anything bef- in that collected that com- you know complete stories book. Don't read anything before Good Man Is Hard to Find, unless you've read everything and just can't yeah, stand it. Want to read more? Yeah. Okay. Well, that's good to know. All well, right. Great. Thank you. Yeah. Andy, this is fun. Man, and it's I nice know. to talk to my target audience right here. And- right here. You've just <laughs> nailed it. And you've convinced me to read your book, which I already went. Was going to do. Yeah, Terrible Speed of Mercy is the name of this book. Terrible Speed of Mercy. And it's out on Thomas Nelson. Thomas Nelson. Kindle yep. will be on all that kind of stuff. Yeah, all that stuff. I love it. Yeah. That's all. Man, thanks. This was thank you. a pleasure. This has been episode number 33 of the Rabbit Room Podcast. Thanks for listening.